Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams, and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well, plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Acton, Acton, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, James Holland, and we've got another special episode today recorded while I was at D-Day Ohio back in August, an enormous festival on the shores of Lake Erie in America, which celebrates the Second World War. This is the second part of the series, so make sure you listen to that first. I tried something a little different in this podcast, so expect some off-the-cuff interviews, riding on landing craft, and my thoughts on a really unforgettable experience. As I was walking the ground, do forgive the wind and background noise, but hopefully that adds to the whole experience. There's certainly a bit of musketry going on in the background. Well, I've now come up onto the onto the top of the bluff, which is a um, a huge camp for some 1,300 reenactors. The guys up here are all U.S. and Duke forces, and I'm in First Army headquarters, and it's just fantastic because you've got a desk with typewriters, and you've got got camp beds, and it's all khaki, and it smells of canvas, and you're just getting that kind of and, and, and metal and oil and wood and grass and oils on there. There's a there's a garand over there and a radio set and uh, and it feels very atmospheric and it you know I'm not going to lie it feels pretty much like you would imagine one of these tents would 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 look like and smell like and it is very very atmospheric. There's a there's a there's a mess mess tin over here and trunks and wooden tables and fold-away chairs. In fact, I'm sitting on a fold-away chair now, and I'm just joined by Colonel Sean Welsh, um, retired from the U.S. Army, um, but who is a, a key player in this and, and serves on First Army... On the staff. On the staff, yeah, exactly. And you've got your, you've got the, the shirt on, you've got the First Army patch on your shoulder, which is a sort of big A with a sort of square-topped A. And we were chatting yesterday, weren't we, uh, Sean, at the, uh, at the, at the briefing... We and you and you were you were saying that there were some things you wanted to sort of get off your chest about well, I think about reenactors some, and history and heritage and preser- preservation, really. Some interesting things to think about this event. So yeah. we already know it's a large event. Yeah, it's okay. huge. Fifty thousand people. East, the attendance, public attendance, can be twenty-five, thirty thousand, or more on one day. One day, probably about twenty, twenty-five is its max. Over the course of a weekend, yeah, you can hit fifty. Yep, and it's free to the public. Okay, they That's ask amazing. for donations, but it's free to the public. So there's That's a nonprofit incredible. corporation that runs this, wow. and there's three ladies at the head of it. They make this happen. But you think about this, it's all volunteer. I there know, that's no amazing. There is no payroll on this corporation. Everybody's in. The community is in. The businesses are in. The mm-hmm. local governments are in. Yep. The local governments support your normal permitting processes and all of that, but then the rest of their municipal supports go to support this event. All the equipment you see here is privately owned. Mm. Everything, the trucks, the cars, the tanks. This tent. This tent is privately owned. The telephones that you hear ringing in the background. The communication set here up here is about as sophisticated as they came for World War II to include functioning teletype. Yep. It's all privately owned. Privately maintained. 
people take their time, learn how this equipment works, they restore it, they spend time ensuring it functions. I think it's important to make the point that it's privately owned. Yep. And this is like probably the only country you can really go all the way in that yeah kind of yeah well I'm, i've been very impressed by the um by the sort of telegraph system you know so there's sort of wooden telegraph poles and, and wire going all around the whole camp you know people are wandering around with with you know there's no modern radios here you're, you're communicating you might have modern radios in them but they're in old right. world war ii they're in in the frames and the and, and the uh yeah, exactly. structure of the radios although there are original radios that are working here right. fm and am and your am radios require Amazing. federal communications commission licensed operators Is that so? so if you're learning how to use these old fm radios and especially the am you have to get licensed that's so there's a process you have to go through because you're going to be stepping on everyone else out there so you need to know right. the rules of the road right you've got um thinking about the people that are here so you've got everything you got young kids in high school and college you've got retired military retired first responders you have professionals doctors educators in fact dentists there's, there's dentists here. absolutely in fact there's a dentist here who has actually reenactments i've seen him do fillings using original equipment emergency <laughs> stuff to help a guy I'm out i'm not sure I'd, okay so it's emergency okay, it was an emergency it was a gentleman a lost a filling this was at another place called redding he lost a filling and the doctor took care of him in fact we're only about 150 feet from the doctor's tent. Amazing. And it's all original World War II yeah, stuff. Yeah, there it is. I, I can see it now. It's got a big sign outside. And there's it. the doctor coming out. 101st Airborne 501 Dental. That's there it. That's him. And he's also a machine gun guy. So he owns a number of machine guns, all fully licensed. Yep. Machine. So when you think about this equipment and you think about, let's say, owning machine guns. So he yep. has a water cooled 30 caliber. Right. If you want to buy one of those, better have a cool sixty-five to $75,000 ready to go so? just to buy it. Really? The licensing, if you can afford to buy it, the licensing is nothing. It's chicken feet. Right. you got to be successful enough to buy the machine gun. He owns like four or five. And he's a doctor, though, so mm. he makes good money. He's top in his profession. Mm -hmm. He lives out in Pittsburgh. Um, so when you look at a person who owns a tank, okay, what's a tank cost? Maybe three hundred thousand yes. dollars. The annual maintenance is probably going to run you somewhere between twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars. Wow! So you're either going to see consortiums of people, like the the little Stewart tank down on mm -hmm. the beach. That's got a consortium of four guys. So you've got in there a private contractor, you've got a f chief financial officer of a major company, and you've got a uh, guy who runs the building for the Ohio Teachers Union, mm. what they operate, and he, ru he runs their building. So these are all professionals, people with means, yep. but they pooled their money together to buy this $200,000 tank, wow. which totally runs. So. I think it's important for people to understand that capacity. I think the other thing to think about is we run this battle, and you've got about six, seven hundred people that are going to come across that beach. Okay, there's a lot of coordination going on. You got the Federal Aviation Administration out here. Mm. You've got the Coast Guard out here. You got alcohol, tobacco, and firearms out here. You've got all these major government entities helping make this event work. Right, and you do the landing essentially with no rehearsal. It's planned. But it doesn't spend the week of rehearsal that the regular army would do to sure. execute something like this. They literally do it right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we're going to do it three times through the course of the weekend. Those are your three times. There isn't anything else. No. And that gets you to the care and precision, which with a lot of these people take in what they're doing. Sure. Well, it's, 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 it's hugely impressive. Um, and you obviously enjoy it. Oh, I 
I meet all kinds of interesting people here. Yeah. I enjoy it. It's it's um in the study that I do for this, it shows me the differences between the army I grew up in. So I signed my first contract in '81. I retired in '14. Um, that army was very different from this army. This was a conscript army. When sure. you think about America, 1940 census, 35 million men, ages 17 to 45. America put 16 million of them in uniform. That's almost one out of every two. Yeah. That's a very different kind of construct than what you see today. Of course, of course. But, but, but you know, I've been asking people like, like Scott and others, you know, where, where you think the kind of heritage of Second World War is going in this country. I mean, do, do you think it's, it's got a long future? Do you think people are, uh, uh, the interest is waning? I mean, on a day like this, you wouldn't think so at all because there's, you know, 50,000 people over the weekend and it's absolutely heaving and everyone's kind of really into it. But, but you know, it's not taught at schools much, is it? And it's a mixture. I mean, I actually sit on a school board. Okay. So some of the educational materials that I see are deficient. Um, others are reasonably effective, but then a lot of it boils down to the teachers themselves. Of course. It's also a geographic thing. Certain parts of the country are less interested in this than other parts. Mm. When you, We are in the heartland of America here in Ohio. Right. This is different from New York City. I know about New York City. They don't care about this. They got other things they're concerned about. Right. The very remoteness of, of comparative remoteness of somewhere like Ohio is actually an advantage when you're looking at this kind of stuff. I wouldn't necessarily call it remoteness. They have a different set of values and a different set of priorities. Right. Okay. When you get to small town America, their priorities are different from big town America. Of course. This kind of an event helps to get that history in front of people's psyche yeah. and get them thinking about it. So one of the things that I noticed this year is an abundance of young people involved. There are a lot of young people involved. I, I say that there's a lot of kids around. I'm just looking through out of the tent, side of the tent now. There's a, what looks like a dad with his with, with three young lads. This morning when we went to see the parachute drop, there was a there was a little boy. He must have been kind of six or seven, wearing his helmet and his right, you know, and his his jump jacket and. 101st Airborne patch on the side and all the rest of it. So, yeah, it's obviously still got a, a resonance. That's what I think will carry into the future. If the younger generation is no longer interested, then it will go away. Yep. You know, it depends on how we pass it on, the interest that they have. A lot of the kids are interested in the equipment. Um, you're more likely to find young people in the heartland that can have the mental desire and the physical capability to maintain and learn how to operate this equipment than you're going to find in the cities. Yep. It just That's what I'm, I'm noticing in my time in this hobby. Mm. So there is a decided difference where I think this is going to live is in the heartland. It's important for them to think about why do we do this? Because a lot of people will read a history book and they'll think, so why am I reading this? What does this matter? As a soldier, to me, it is about understanding the conditions of the time. Yes. Not trying to apply today's views onto the time period, no, but trying no, no, no. to understand Absolutely. what the views were then, what the drivers were, and then learn the lessons from that as to what do I bring forward. Sure. Now, I can tell you on the Army staff, when we were about to put a major decision before um, our senior leaders, uh, one of the things I would do is I'd call the Center for Military History and say, hey, we're getting ready to make a major policy decision on installation management. Mm -hmm. Write me a paper that tells me from 1813 to now 
What were the major milestones in managing Army installations? What were the laws involved? What were the regulations involved? How did we move the money? What organizations were in charge? Give me an overview of that. And then about a week later, I get a 10-page paperback that would lay all of those things out. And I could look at that over time and get a sense of what worked and what didn't yep. and cherry-pick from each of those different eras and then build that into the different <laughs> recommendation options we would give senior leaders. Sure. And that used to happen on the Army staff all the time. Huh. You see some of that happening here as people are reading and looking at the history and trying to decide what parts of this are really important to me and what, what lessons do I want people to understand coming forward into their day-to-day -day life. What do you learn from this? Well, I can tell you the simple thing is it's all about people. Yeah. It's all about your relationships and your ability to communicate with people and to pass on what, if you're the leader, what your end state vision is. Mm -hmm. There's a major lesson from the Second World War. The Allies knew what the end state was. The yep. Axis had no clue what the end state was. If right. you don't know where you're going, you'll never get there. Yep. Those are things that are important. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, there are there's friends. some universals, aren't there? There's some things that don't change. You Absolutely, know, the equipment might change. You might be in an age of GPS and hypersonic weapons and all the rest of it. But there are certain fundamentals which ring true, whatever the conflict. Which is why. Absolutely. World War Two is still incredibly recent in the big scheme of things. You know, it's it's a pinprick away, and and you, you know, I Huge. my own view is that you know people people would forget about it at their peril. But anyway, I can tell you in war college when we would say, "Gee." We're looking at different kinds of operations. Our instructors would tell us, if you're looking to get an example, the first place you look is World War II because yep. the scale was so massive. It'll be that. Yeah, you'll have something there to start with and then either move forward or in both directions to look at different examples. Yep. But always start. We would always start with World War II. And that's 2007 when I went to War College. Amazing. Thank well, you. Colonel, thank you very much. Thank you. Fascinating. Really interesting. We're going to take a break here, but I'll be back with more Deed Ohio in just a moment. So um, we've come down to the, the little dock on, on the lakeshore and uh, Amy is the uh, coxswain, would you call yourself the coxswain? Yep. Of this landing craft, which, well, first Vietnam era, it's exactly the same as a Higgins boat, except that it's fiberglass rather than made of wood. So, no changes whatsoever. Used in Saving Private Ryan. And it's quite a thing, isn't it? I it mean, is. it's fun to do. It's amazing. It's especially we just had a World War II vet on board with us. Oh. And that was probably the best experience talking to him, getting his story before he got off the boat. What was his story? He was in the Atlantic on yeah. uh, one of the repair vessels. Wow. But especially once we get out, we you open the throttle up and he stood up and is just staring out at the water and they get this look and it's, you can tell they're remembering. Yes. And that's what means the most, like just yeah, watching yeah, yeah. them experience that. And very quickly before we shoot off, I mean, how did you get into this? <laughs> I was told, hey, you got to come down and do this. It's really cool. And we started off just working lines on the docks. Right. Um, I'm from Buffalo, New York, and right. I'm crew on the Buffalo Fireboat, which is the oldest working fireboat in the world. Yes. And over the last year, to be a better asset to the crew there, I took my um, Coast Guard Captain's License certification for a 200 ton, up to a 200 ton vessel, and I have a sailing add-on. So technically, I'm the only boat operator here that's certified right now. That's amazing. <laughs> but I. It's, it's just getting experience. There's some yeah. amazing John and Lee who run, own and run the boats. 
Um, and their family members have been boating their entire lives. So I'm learning so much being here. It's an honor. Wow, wow, wow. Well, thank you for inviting us on. That's amazing. I'm glad you made it. So am I. So are we. <laughs> so we're moving away now. And, you know, you can see how these things were mass produced because it's, it's, it's really basic. Um, there's lots of bits of metal work exposed, exposed wires and cables. You can see the cable wear from the steering wheel to the rudder. It's all, you know, it's, <laughs> there it is just away to my left. We're standing behind Amy at the, uh, at the stern of the landing craft and two 30 calibers here, little kind of sort of circular kind of portholes with a, with a 30 caliber pointing out. Upper front is, is the ramp. All the crew are in their naval kit, so they've got these rather fabulous navy shirts and denims. And it's noisy, you know, because, you know, there's no, no reason for kind of sort of muffling the sound here. And it's all very straightforward. It's quite something to be on it. You know, I've been in tanks. I've been in warbirds. I've never been in a Higgins boat before. A first for everything. And I've got to say, you know, the uh, unlike yesterday, the water is very flat, very, very still, and it's a pretty smooth ride, really, but, but it wouldn't have been, of course, on D-Day. It's amazing because when Amy is steering, you can actually see the wires that go down to the rudder moving back and forth on little pulleys. So it's a little steel wire. It's a bit rough around the edges. It's, it's rough and ready. It's basic. But that's all it needs to be. You know, this is, this is going from the mothership to, to shore and nothing more. A crew of four, so two working the crank for the door, yes. and one at either latch at either side of the door. So as soon as they, you hit the beach, you pull the latches, their arms go up. That's the cue for the, the crank operator to let the door out, door goes out. You have 36 troops, full kit and weapons crammed in here. They get off, and as soon as the last guy is stepping off, they're starting to wind the door back up. As soon as it hits, the latch guys throw the latch and their arms go up, and the coxswain backs off the beach. That's it. That's it. And how long does that take? We've been doing two to three minute turnaround times for the battle. Isn't that amazing? So. And you've got, and who, who's manning the, the 30 calibers? You, the two crew on the way okay. out and in and out. Um, so I've now moved up to the front of the Higgins boat for a second spin around. And what's quite interesting, you look at the base of the ramp, and apparently this is just fire hose, is the seal. <laughs> and it's not much of a sealant, it has to be said. Water is coming in but um, that's part of the course. And you kind of think about it, well, of course it's going to come in, but it's not very much. And there, there is a bilge pump, isn't there? Yep. Bilge pump that, once it gets a bit too full, but you can imagine on D-Day with, with sort of rocky seas and stuff, you'd be getting a lot in here. The other thing that, that strikes me is actually, I'm quite a tall fellow, I'm six foot three, but I'm well over the top of this. Um, so we're now off the uh, off the Higgins boat, and um, our coxswain Amy Beecher is sitting with us. And um, Amy, I mean, how on earth did you get into all of this? Because you you seem to have a finger in the, the C forty seven pie. I do. You've got a finger in the Higgins boat pie. Um, fantastic coxswaining, by the way. Oh, thanks. I thought you had two landings, very good. Moorings, I should say. Moorings. We um. This is the only time we usually do navy. Most everything we do is with the Army Air Corps and the plane side of things. Right, right, but just rewind. I mean, where, where did, how did you get interested in all this in the first place? Just history. It's, it's so important to be able to tell their stories and keep their memory alive, and as long as we're saying their names and telling their stories. Right. 
they're not forgotten. But you're you're based in Buffalo, New York. I am. And 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 were you always interested in the Second World War? <laughs> so we do history lectures every through from 1960s through 1950s, and then I lived in Virginia, Northern Virginia, for a while, mm-hmm. and that was a lot of the American Civil War. Yeah, of course. And I'd lectured on women's clothing, etiquette, and dance. Right. Um, and then. And where were you doing that? In Virginia. Yeah. I kind of all over. We go all over, travel all over, but. Yeah. So um, what's the what's the organization then? I was with Lee's Lieutenants. Right. With the Civil War um, uh-huh. and 17th Virginia Infantry Fairfax Rifles. Right. So you do living history, reenactment, all that kind of stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. We enjoy the living history more, the teaching element of it, rather than going out and do all the big battles. Right, yeah, I get that. So, and that kind of Virginia's the place to be, isn't it? For American Civil War, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it just kind of evolved into doing some of the. I got really interested in. My family's Polish. Right. So I got involved with the Polish Living History, and they. um, I needed something to do with all the guys. Right. And. I like telling the little-known stories. Right. You know, there's tons of, you know, cooks and secretaries and nurses. Right. Which is very important. Yep. But the stuff that people don't know about, and I got interested in the air transport auxiliary that was under the RAF, Mm. and there were 25 American women that were recruited in 1938-39 to go fly planes and transfer planes and ferry goods and people and whatever. Over here in the U.S.? Well, they came from the U.S. and went to England. Is that so? I and didn't know that. They had women from Brazil. There were four from Poland. There really? Were, so that was... What an amazing story. I had no idea. See? That's, there you go. That's why I got into it, to tell that story. Yeah. And then... So I did that with the Polish Living History Group. Yeah. And then that got me more into the World War II stuff. And yes. then the woman who started the WASPs, Jackie Cochran started in the ATA in England right? and learned a bunch of stuff and came back and started the program here. So then right. I started lecturing on the pros and cons of both programs and why one was more successful than the other, uh-huh. which led me into doing more of the WASP stuff right? and being involved with the National Warplane Museum yep. outside of Buffalo and fly. I'm finishing my private pilot's license. God, that's so cool. <laughs> so I want to be able to experience after talking to some of the yes, women yes, from the yeah, ATA yeah, and everything and the way they learned and what they did they all whether you read their journals or talk to them they all have this experience flying spitfires it's just the way they describe it the way they look when they're talking about it and i want to understand that yeah there's so, a great story of i can't remember who, who it was who, who did who thought she'd do a barrel roll and uh her compact fell out of her <laughs> out of her pocket there's powder all around the cockpit how on earth am I going to get out of this? Because A, I can't see an awful lot because there's powder everywhere. And B, I'm going to have to explain why there's all this kind of skin-coloured powder in the cockpit of the Spitfire. So I, can't remember what the, I can't remember how she did get out of it. I just remember that moment. It's very funny. But that's my goal, is to finish my private pilots and log all my time and everything and be able to go over and okay. fly Spitfires and well, experience it can, that. It can be done. So, And I'm learning the way they... I want to learn the way they did in a tailwheel aircraft. Yes. yes. So I know I'm spoiled, but I've got friends and everything that are letting me do lessons... That's, All my training, very, everything very is in impressive. a ta- World War II tailwheel airplanes. Well, so. you know that that's just incredible, <laughs> fantastic. But you are, you will absolutely love it. I've, I've absolutely no doubt whatsoever. It's just <laughs> fun. It's interesting. It's an important part of history to keep. Yeah. Keep alive and special to be part of. And have you driven a tank yet? I have. <laughs> <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant. And you come up here every year, do you? This is my third year doing it. Yes. Right. Right. And right. Right. The Adams and everybody are so nice to let us fall in with them and help yeah, them yeah. out, and they're teaching us unbelievable 
amount of history and boating and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And I mean, I've been asking people, you know, how they how they view the Second World War over here and, and what they think the kind of future is and whether they think there's that people will continue to be interested. I mean, you look at look at here. There's obviously a lot of oh. people this weekend. But do you think so? I, mean, I absolutely think that the interest is there. That it needs to be taught somewhere if it's not being taught in the schools. Yeah, and you think it's important to do so? Absolutely. You don't think it's kind of, you know, everyone should get over it and move on? Nope. you got to tell the stories. Thank you for the ride in the Higgins boat. That was a real treat, and good luck with the Spitfire. Um, so the D-Day battle is now over. It's about half past four, and the battle itself lasted actually a little bit more than half an hour. And it's the most extraordinary thing because you've got landing craft, you've got Higgins craft shuttling men onto the beaches, you've got beach obstacles, you've got Germans halfway up the bluff spattering out MG42s. The noise is extraordinary. You've got Sherman tanks, you've got upgun Sherman tanks, you've got British troops, Canadian troops, lots of Americans. Um, I'm still with World War II armor and I've been with a priest and a 155 millimeter long tom. And it's quite a thing, isn't it? It's 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 a it's a big old beast, Anthony. Oh, absolutely! This was uh, my first D-Day uh, ever. Right. Much less experiencing actually being on the uh, firing end of all this equipment. So. And this is just a huge piece of kit, and you know, this is the only one that's you can still fire left in the world. Obviously, lots and lots of them in World War Two. Absolutely. And I mean, it is it it's. I'm kind of, you know, there's one sort of side where it says, you know, everyone's dressing up, you know, playing with guns and all the rest of it. But it's it's not that, is it? It's it's really about heritage and preserving heritage, preserving the skills that these guys were using during the war and understanding a little bit of what they went through. And you see that battle today and you, you get you get a hint of it, don't you? You get a hint of it. It's about as close as you're going to get. No one's actually dying. No one's really shooting at you. You know, there's there's not really the fog of war. But you're using the kit, you're wearing the kit, you're getting a sense of the smells and the sounds and some of the experience, aren't you? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, we are we're just out here. We want to preserve all this equipment. We like to think of ourselves as the curators of all these pieces. Yeah. Obviously, they're not ours, but we want to share the history of all the equipment that's out here. Mm. Um, we love it when everybody comes out to see it and they ask us questions and we can tell them the stories behind it. Yep. We're not trying to tell any one particular person person's story, just the story of everything that's out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's 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 been great, and it's been it's been absolutely fascinating for me to 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 see this in action, to see how you maneuver it, and the electric firing, and uh, and all that sort of thing, um, and seeing the the size of the shells. I mean, these are big old slugs, aren't they? Even the concussion, like the, your photographer, who was yeah. embedded in the with the infantry, and when he was in the hole, and the concussion, a hundred yards, two three hundred yards away, is knocking sand into his hole. That is how you're going to get the closest right. you can to actually being in battle yep yeah 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 it's been it's been absolutely fascinating and Corey this is your your first time yeah absolutely first time ever what an amazing experience love the immersion yeah because normally you're on the priest yeah 
and then this is the first time being having the opportunity. This is what my grandfather did in World War II. Towed this particular gun behind him. Did he really? Europe. Yep. So it was an honor for me to be a part of this. Yeah, and so that get, that makes you a little bit closer to him and, and his experiences, I suppose? Yes, absolutely. It's an honor to do this. And even in the battle, if you don't have goosebumps and the hair on the back of your neck's not standing up, when you're firing the 155, you see the explosion, then a Mustang rips through 100 feet <laughs> over the top. I mean, if that doesn't look and then go over the beach, it's completely amazing. Yep. Yeah, well, I second that. Well, listen, I mean, it's 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 sort of the end of the um, Ohio D-Day weekend. But um, thank you guys, all of you, for um, letting me come and, and join you. And Stu over there, um, <laughs> no, letting, letting us both come and kind of limb in with you guys. Well, I can truly say it's been a, an experience like no other. Put it that way. Thank you.